Welcome back to the 53rd Professor Penn podcast. David Penn, I'm happy to see you. I hope you're well. We started out with uh, an insane boogie by Oscar Peterson, who, if the Nazis had prevailed, or when they do prevail, would have been exterminated because he was a subhuman, part of the hereditary genetic uh, flotsam and jetsam of humanity. Can you believe that? That they would have killed him as an inferior human? Is that kind of shocking to you, Tanner? It's pretty shocking, but at the same time, not surprising for the times. For the times? Yes. Yes, for the times. You know, we have an interesting world today. You know, we have cultures today, prominent world-leading cultures that are filled with this kind of racist sentiment where people of darker skin color, darker hues, are looked down upon as being inferior people. Did you know that was going on right now today? Oh, yeah. You do know that? Oh, yeah. Okay, cool, because I'm going to tell you, and I've said this before as a Jewish-born person, whoa, I found a lot of anti-Semitism here played in the political. That's a shocker. I want to thank you all for coming back. Uh, many of you are noticing I'm trying to communicate with as many people as I can in the live chats on Getter, on X, uh, on YouTube. I'm trying to communicate. I want you to know if I do not answer you, it is not personal. I'm just besieged with um, opportunities to communicate with people, and I'm, I'm trying to do as much as I can. There's 24 hours in a, in a day. And I'm giving this as much as I can, and I hope God gives me more energy so I can communicate with you more. Because we are a community. We're a political community. We have a goal. We're going to talk about that goal. We're focused on one goal now. One of the things that I have been blessed with is the ability to just have a big vision. And having a big vision without taking the next step is not helpful. We have to be practical. So I'm very focused on what happens next. And that's something I've learned in my business career because if I hadn't been in business, hey, I'd be a dreamer, a hopeless dreamer. And, you know, you've been coming to the podcast. You know, I see things in a very kind of holistic way. I've been trained that way. I like doing it. I like how it makes me feel. But I have to take that next step. What is the next step that I have to do today? So I want to start out uh, always by thanking Free People Radio. We're truth-seeking media, and we are combining ourselves with the Patriot Economy, which we're going to talk about today, uh, our sponsor, TireGet.com, T-I-R-E-G-E-T.com, TireGet, all your tires you're ever going to need for any vehicle that you have, you go to TireGet.com, got to buy your tires from somebody. If you buy them from us, you're funding this broadcast, and we appreciate your support. And I happen to know that TireGet is going to be getting a lot better. TireGet, because of your support, is also growing, and I want to thank you for that. PrecinctStrategy.com. Yes, I keep mentioning it. Why? Because today might be the day you go there and take a tutorial on how to get into the game of politics. That's PrecinctStrategy.com. I've put hundreds of people into the political who have come to me through the Precinct Strategy and said, Professor Penn, could you help us get oriented? That's what we're doing. We want to demystify the politics and make that secret society 
available to all the American citizens. Why would our political process be so secretive? Well, that's a very... Tanner, why do you think our political process is secretive? So then the average Joe like me doesn't get involved. Isn't that kind of interesting that you know that? You know, you're getting ruined hanging around here. <laughs> I'm ruining you. There's going to be no excuse for you because you're going to know all the stuff. Yeah, ignorance was bliss, and you're just wrecking it for me. Um, yes, that's our job. You know, that's from The Matrix, right? When Morpheus uh, says to Neo, take your choice, blue pill or red pill, and, you know, Neo reaches for the red pill, and Morpheus says, remember, all I promised you was the truth. And that's something I've had to come to grips with, and I'm buzzing all over my body because I believed that if I understood things, heaven was going to break out. That's what I believed for most of my adult life, that if I just kept working and growing and praying and studying, I was going to emerge into some kind of a state where I could uh, manipulate the world for my own purposes. I mean, that's just, I'm just being honest. And actually, what I actually am finding is I'm moving from narcissism to altruism and I'm giving over to the process of bringing forth a more well-being world, and it's fantastic for me. That's what I'm finding. It's not about getting into heaven or understanding, you know, some kind of ultimate reality which gives me some edge in the game of life. Reminds me of Blazing Saddles. That's another movie you never heard of, right? Blazing Saddles. Never heard of it. Never heard of it. Great. Blazing Saddles. That's another one I'm going to have to get to. There's a character in our in that movie. His name is Mongo, played by Alex Karras. He used to be a professional football player. He was quite a big guy, and he he played a you know kind of a rough, big guy who wasn't too smart. He was there for his bronze and not for his brains. And he says in a very famous scene, "Mongo just pawn in game of life," and we're all pawns in the game of life. And there's many more pawns than there are kings and queens. So when the pawns understand the game, oh, they won't be pawns anymore, will they? No, they won't. That's what we're doing here. Now, I want to take a minute and follow up on some things because I get riffing, and I know it doesn't seem like I'm riffing, but I start riffing, and I, I made the statement that 50% of our military budget goes to salaries. I think I said pensions. It's actually salaries and pensions. I looked it up. About 50% of what's spent in our defense outlays, outgoes, our expenditures, our defense expenditures, goes for pensions and salaries. And what's not quite 50%, hey, go look up the Veterans Administration. Their budget is not tiny. So you add up pensions and salaries and health care, and 50% of that trillion and a half bucks that's on the books, and another, I don't know, trillion dollars that they got squirreled away in different things like scientific research. About half of that is going to pay people. Isn't that interesting? Huh, it's pretty good business. Uh, I also am going to comment on this a little bit later. I made the statement that um, one Jewish grandparent would get you clipped in Nazi Germany. And that was true sometimes, but not most of the time. It took two Jewish grandparents, two, two Jewish grandparents. And as far as the Nazis were concerned, you were a Jew. And, you know, that didn't have a very good outcome, something we'll talk more about. I want to take a minute and talk about a very, very good friend of mine, someone that I've actually developed a love for because I can. there's very few people Professor Penn can call 
and say, please help me. Please help me with my faith walk. I have a very good friend. He's older than me. He's a very faithful man. He's about 20, uh, he's probably 20 years older than me. And he's still vital, like he's 25 years old. This guy's spirit-filled. And we were at a meeting this past week, and uh, I made a comment that our our military was an all-mercenary military. And why I say that is, is we don't have a draft here. You have to enlist. We were talking about that, right? You know, you enlist and you get paid. People, Some people do it to be all they can be, and some people do it for all they can be plus the cash that comes with it. And it, it can be a very lucrative life to be involved lifetime in the military. And I said that to him at a meeting, a political meeting, and this guy almost came over the table on me. And I felt terrible about it because I actually love this person. He's really an inspiring human being, very inspiring. And he got very mad at me because his father was a career military man, a pilot who gave his life in service to his country. And uh, he got, and I, I felt terrible about it. And I apologized to him because it's not that I was wrong. And when he settled down, he recognized that what I was saying was the truth. But his father's been dead since the 50s. And he has all these judgments, judgments that ring around his father's death, his military service. And for those of us that are older, that have a real sense of America's performance in World War II, for example, we have a deep respect for the military and for the good intentions of the United States of America. And it's hard for us, even this man's involved in my political movement, so he knows what's going on. In fact, he's a radical, okay? He's a radical. But I triggered something that had not been touched for a long time. And he got very mad at me. And two good things came out of that. Number one, I learned, and you know, I'm 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 my own walk. I don't want to say things that hurt people's feelings. I mean, sometimes it has to happen, but if I can find a way to say something that brings forth the truth without creating conflict or creating pain, I'm all for the natural way without that. Sometimes we say things and there's judgments involved and that pain gets triggered. So I had the opportunity to think through how I presented the idea. And I will be much more sensitive because there are many people who have served this country with a great deal of sacred honor. And we don't want to broad brush those people with all the bleeps that are taking advantage of the American people. There's two different groups here. Well, there's three different groups. There's the good, the bad, and the ugly, okay? Or however you want to say it. There's the good, the people that are selflessly involved in, in service to God and country. There's the evil that are manipulating and using these people. And then there's the you know great majority in the middle that are trying to avoid thinking about it. And I, I think it was, you know, I think it's incumbent upon me to do the best I can to speak in a way that uplifts people. That's what I want to do because this is about well-being. But this man who's my friend and who I respect had the courage to look at his judgments and even though I triggered him, those judgments, when triggered, they moved, and he was able to look at those judgments and get light in there, and he apologized to me, and it didn't hurt our relationship. In fact, I hope it made our relationship stronger because he knows I love him, and he knows I'm not intentionally saying things to be harmful. 
And I know he's triggered and he's trying to bring light into his soul, into his spirit, into his thinking. And that's why Christ said, judge not lest you be judged. Because when we judge, when we make judgments, it's to most of the time control fear or pain or suffering that we're going through. For example, when a man's father dies in a military setting, and he's a young man, and his father died, and he feels all that loss and pain, it would be natural to judge that everything that father was involved in was good and true and worthwhile, and to judge that to make some sense of that pain. And then when those judgments were triggered, hey, they attacked me. Well, we're going to have to go through some of that as American citizens because so many of the things we believe are not true. Let's do something together that is true. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating the light and the dark. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating me in your image. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for making me an American. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for making me free. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for healing the blind. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for feeding the people. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for releasing the bound. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for raising up the downtrodden. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating the heavens and earth. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for providing for all my needs. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for directing my path. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for our American courage. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for crowning America with glory. And blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for restoring strength to the weary. Patriots. Let's talk about patriots. Let's talk about patriots just for a minute. The patriot economy. Patriots. Tanner, can you cue up this clip about the dangers of BlackRock and their funding of Chinese domination? Congress is investigating the largest asset management company in the world over its investment practices. The House Select Committee on China is looking into BlackRock over concerns that large amounts of U.S. capital are going to blacklisted Chinese companies. A similar probe is also underway at another firm. Florida Congressman, Congressman Carlos Jimenez, serves on the House Select Committee on China. Congressman, thanks for joining us this afternoon. You know, there are endless accusations of companies, of money, of U.S. capital going to companies and fronts that are connected to the Chinese Communist Party that engage in slave labor practices. What makes BlackRock and MSCI, the other company involved here, stand out to the committee? Well, look, uh, we just looked at, uh, at BlackRock and MSCI and took a sliver of their index uh, funds and found that in the case of BlackRock, just a sliver of them, uh, there's over half a billion dollars, close to half a billion dollars in uh, U.S. investments and companies that have direct ties to the CCP and the PLA, the PLA being the People's Liberation Army. Uh, the People's Liberation Army, their intent is to become the most powerful military force in the world by the year 2049, and it appears that BlackRock is helping them do it by, uh, by uh, investing in these companies that have these deep ties with the PLA and the CCP. 
BlackRock released a statement to Fox Business saying, quote, like many global asset managers, BlackRock offers our clients a number of strategies to invest in or exclude China from their portfolios. The majority of our clients' investments in China are through index funds, and we are one of 16 asset managers currently offering U.S. index funds investing in Chinese companies. What do you say to that? I say that we need to get out. Uh, it's time that we stopped uh, investing in Chinese companies. Look, uh, in China, they have a law that every single company, every Chinese company has to work with the PLA and the CCP. Uh, there's no way around it. So if there's a technology that the PLA would like to use and you're a Chinese company, you have to give it to them. And so for us to continue to invest in China is suicidal. Eventually, it's going to bite us. Uh, it's already biting us. And we need to start to, to decouple ourselves from China as quickly as we can. I'm a bit of a hawk on that. Some people, and even in my, in my committee, don't agree with that. But I see the writing on the wall. I see what the, the Chinese Communist Party wants to do, global domination. And we're helping to fund it. We need to stop it, and we need to stop it right now. This decoupling debate, do you feel as though you have some bipartisan support to move more towards that? And then secondly, who else is the committee looking into? Are there other targets for the committee's investigation? Well, look, um, you know, MSCI obviously is, is uh, on this, but we need to look at the entire, you know, all of Wall Street and see how much of Wall Street and how much of our money, you know, I'm a retiree, okay, so how much of our money is going to help China, uh, is going to help to enslave, you know, the people of China and eventually, um, you know, put that, uh, that uh, philosophy, that ideology over the entire world. Uh, and my money is going to be uh, used to, to help that. We need to stop it, and we need to do it right now. And yes, I believe that there, it's, there, well, I have bipartisan support. There may be some differences on how quickly we need to decouple, but I think there's pretty good support that we eventually need to decouple uh, and get away from uh, China and Chinese investments and investing in Chinese companies that eventually are going to be used to the detriment of American interests. Congressman Carlos Jimenez. Congressman, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Carlos Jimenez, this is his first term in Congress. He just went there. Let's see how he goes on down the road. I hope he stays with his patriotic fervor about this issue. Now, this is, was on Fox News, so I'm hoping I can say these things without trouble from the constabulary. This is news, right? These are facts, facts, right from Wikipedia. BlackRock was founded in 1988, 35 years ago, by two very industrious young people at that time, Robert Capito and Larry Fink. Larry Fink is quite famous. Capito's in the background somewhat. It's a worldwide company. Uh, Fink is the chairman and CEO. Capito is the president. They're asset managers. I mean, these people have assets under management. It's assets under manage management. A-U-M. Get a load of this number. Are you ready? 9.42 trillion dollars. 9.42 trillion. Let me put this into some kind of a framework for you. Mexico, the country of Mexico, its entire gross domestic product annually is around 1.8 trillion. So these assets under management at, at BlackRock are four times the country of Mexico's output. The state of Texas is $2 trillion. Our entire economy here in the United States of America is about $24 trillion. 
And that's with the juiced baseball. We'll talk about that more later. $9.42 trillion. 20,000 people work for this company. BlackRock. Nice name, isn't it? The BlackRock. Their operating income this past year was $6.39 billion. That's a piece or two, isn't it? Their net income was $5.18 billion. Uh, these people have their fingers in a lot of pies. And Congressman Jimenez, who is new to the game, is calling for an investigation of U.S. financial investment in Chinese firms. And it's right on Fox. I mean, come on. You can't get any more mainstream than Fox. This is the legacy media. So they're playing some kind of a game here where we got a couple of guys running out on point, screaming the sky is falling. This is Chicken Little, right? He can read the, read the writing on the wall, I think he said. Right? He can read the what What writing is he reading? He's reading what the Chinese leave for everybody else to read. Should we read it? And what they're saying is they want all of our money every last dime. They think we're lazy and stupid and fat, and they don't think we deserve the wealth that is developed in this country, which is well over $100 trillion. They want every penny of it. Now, there's a, a, a philosophical political concept called libertarianism. Libertarianism. It's from a French word, libertaire. It's a political philosophy that upholds liberty or freedom as its core value. Libertarians seek to maximize their autonomy and political freedom and minimize the state's encroachment on in violation of their individual liberties, emphasizing the rule of law, pluralism, cosmopolitanism, cooperation, civil and political rights, bodily autonomy, freedom of association, free trade, freedom of expression, freedom of choice, freedom of movement, individualism, and voluntary association. It sounds very close to the rights that are granted to me, the unalienable rights, by my creator. It's very close. It's very close. It's very close. And, of course, the French Revolution happened very close in time to our American Revolution. There, And this is a French word, libertarianism the French political philosophy. Actually, it's radical narcissism. What these people believe is, it's all about me. If you go over it again, you know, they want to minimize the state's encroachment on in violation of individual liberties. What the libertarian says is, giving the state any power at all is a danger to my freedom. And that's true. That is absolutely true. But when we go through paradigm shifts, in other words, when this idea of libertarianism was first proposed, people were on horseback, okay? And we were just at the front edge of the scientific revolution and the industrial age that accompanied that revolution. So we've gone through all these progressive paradigm shifts, which has allowed a very lucky group of people to acquire a very big sum of net worth. And those people think they're geniuses. They think, are you worth a billion dollars? 
Yeah. Okay, great. Are you worth a billion dollars? Seriously? Yeah, I would believe. I would say. I don't You're know. worth a billion. I'm worth a billion. You probably. are worth a billion. Yeah. Do you have a billion dollars in a bank account? Nope. But you're worth a billion. I'm worth a billion. So you have inestimable human worth as a human being. They don't care about that. Cash in the bank, you don't have a billion dollars. No. You suck in their view. You're a dummy. Professor Penn's a dummy because they measure the worth of a human by the cash on hand. That's where libertarian has developed over the years. It's all about me. I don't want the government to tax me. I don't want the government to tell me what to do medically. It's all kind of bound up together. But the basic bottom line of this BlackRock idea with the, let me say this again, $9.42 trillion of assets under management, that means people like oh, your parents, your parents. If you're 35, 45 years old and you're watching the show, you got parents probably my age, they might've got a stack over the course of their lifetime. They might've invested it with BlackRock and BlackRock is returning, is, is returning them a profit on that investment every year, year after year. And BlackRock thinks, Hey, we're going to go wherever the gains are, wherever the return on inv Don't tell me to invest in some piss ass little company in Ohio with a thousand union members that want to make $35 an hour in benefits. That's no good. That's going to cut down on my investment. What we're going to do is we're going to break that union. We're going to sell off those assets. We're going to take that equipment and all the intellectual property that's involved in it, and we're going to ship it to China, and we're going to get the exact same product for 40% less, and we're going to put that in our pocket. That's libertarianism. Now, of course, libertarianism is a lot more than that, but the element of it is it's about me. It's all about me. And what has happened is we've taken this attitude to such an extreme that we've lost our country. We've lost our borders. We've lost our economic self-sufficiency. We've lost our self-worth. We've lost our sense of integrity. So there's a balance. I don't want a big government. I want the government to be as small as it possibly can be. But I want we as the American people to invest in our country. That's what nationalism is, a border that protects the American people, the value of my citizenship, and jobs that allow me to make a good living here. I don't want to be a serf. And this libertarian idea that it's all about me has infected all the business people. They, of course, give the money to the politicians, and that political philosophy has spread throughout the uni party. The uni party. So let's talk about the uni party. Let's talk about an old uni party, not you know, what we've been working on, the Nazi ideology. Let's spend some time today and really delve in to the scholarly understanding of the Nazi ideology in the concept of Gleichschultung. Tanner, can you play this piece on Nazi ideology? It's quite a long piece. We'll stop along the way. It's very informative. Before we start this, if you noticed in the uh, scroll at the beginning, this is a video that was made at Vad Yashem, 
which is the Holocaust Museum and Memorial in Israel. You can't get any more invested in understanding the Nazis than the Holocaust Research and Museum and Memorial that's in Israel. Please continue. Nazi ideology was a worldview that claimed to explain everything about the world and how it functions. At its core, the Nazi worldview was racist and biological, positing that the so-called Aryan race, primarily the North Europeans, was the superior race of human beings to which nearly all positive human development in science, technology, art, architecture, and other fields could be attributed. All other races and peoples, save the Jews, were viewed as occupying rungs below the Aryans in a sort of hierarchy of races. Various West Europeans, such as the French and Italians, were relatively high in the hierarchy, and others, particularly the Slavic peoples, very low. The Aryans' innate superiority granted them the right and obligation to rule over other races and peoples for the benefit of humankind. The Jews, in complete contrast, were seen as a kind of anti-race, dangerous, inhuman beings in seemingly human form. They were viewed alternatively as microbes and parasites, or as devils, that is, inhuman creatures with superhuman power, a threat to the very existence of the world, a danger of cosmic proportions. And radical danger required a radical, total, and irreversible solution. But from where did the Nazis derive these ideas? And to what extent were their ideas in sync with the world at the time? We should first note that everything that Hitler and the Nazi believers argued had been said before. The Nazi worldview claimed to be scientific, and indeed it based itself on and drew from various scientific developments up, in the modern era. Now, I have to say as Professor Penn, I'm very happy to find this. I did not know this was there. I spent a lot of time researching and what we're about to walk into is about seven or eight minutes of the Holocaust Memorial in Israel repeating everything that I've been saying in my podcast, which is great because it means that independent researchers from throughout the world are seeing the same things. It doesn't mean we're right. I'm not saying that this is ultimate truth. I'm saying there's a truth here that many people are seeing, and I hope you can see it also. Science is the root of the Nazi ideology. Please continue. Let's take a look at some of the various sources from which the Nazis drew. Christian anti-Judaism, the development of new fields of research in social sciences and humanities, particularly philology and anthropology, the development of modern racism, particularly the theory of evolution, genetics and eugenics, and modern anti-Semitism. Christian anti-Judaism from early Christian times onward was essentially an attack on Jewish belief. The Jews were accused of deicide, rejecting and then killing the Messiah that God had sent. They were accused of blinding themselves to the truth, and hence Christianity had replaced Judaism as the new Israel. Jews were accused of being in league with the devil, 
and of engaging in evil practices, such as the charge that they kill Christian children to use their blood in rituals, the so-called blood libel. Still, at its core, this attack sought to convert the Jews to what Christians believed was the one truth, Christianity. The treatment of the Jews was often brutal and at times murderous, but this anti-Judaism left open an escape clause for Jews, conversion. Any Jew who converted to Christianity essentially solved the problem. Can you stop Yet it, please? Of course, this is recounted from a Jewish perspective. So this commentator, this scholar is saying that discovering the truth of Christ was an escape valve or an escape clause. Actually, there's other ways to talk about this, such as Jews discovering the truth of Christianity. You know, it doesn't have to just be an escape. People, people could actually come to another understanding of truth over time. Could you continue, please? This anti-Judaism also left an imprint on European society and its view of the Jews. And the Nazis used this imprint to good advantage in gaining tacit or active support in Germany and all of Europe. Philosophical and scientific developments in the 18th and 19th centuries both advanced societies and justified inequality at the same time. Whereas Christian belief and the new modern secular humanism shared a conviction that all human beings are potentially equal, whether because they are created in God's image or because all are born equal, some scholars in the new fields of philology, anthropology, and biology sought to exploit these sciences in order to demonstrate the supposed inherent inequality of peoples. Many of these scientific pioneers argued that the differences between languages, peoples, and cultures pointed to the superiority of some over others. Charles Darwin's theory of evolution provided these scientists the missing scientific theory that helped explain common origins to seemingly disparate things. Many philologists. I have to say again, how fun this is for me to find a scholar on the other side of the world identifying Darwin as one of the root causes of the problems we face with Nazism. Isn't that interesting? Thought I made this stuff up, didn't you? No. Continue, please. Pointed to the Indo-European languages, a new concept of a language group as the most developed and superior language family, while many anthropologists pointed to some European cultures as more developed and advanced than other cultures. Their research seemed to provide a scientific underpinning for the racist theories that developed, and Nazi theorists and supporters later seized on these ideas and tried unsuccessfully to provide scientific evidence to support them. The important sociologist and physiologist Herbert Spencer promoted a theory known as social Darwinism in the 1850s. In contrast to Darwin's theory of evolutionary development in the plant and animal worlds through natural selection over eons of time, Spencer argued for struggle and the survival of the fittest in the human social order in the present tense. He believed the strong must rule and the weak must submit. By the mid 1800s. Hold it up here for a second. I want to say again, every time Spencer comes up, the reason people talk about Spencer like this is because of a scholar whose name was Misha Penn. Misha Penn started teaching at the University of Minnesota in 1959. He was presenting this idea about Spencer in the mid 60s. 
He lost his job over this. He got it back. My father passed in 2019, but this entire line of inquiry was started by my father, and I have to give him my respect and my love. Please continue. Racism that claimed to be scientifically based had become widely accepted. But this modern racism saw not only people of dark skin as inferior, but also divided white people into races. Count Joseph Arthur de Gobineau's 1855 book on the inequality of the races based itself on research in philology and anthropology to argue that the white races are superior to the black and yellow, and that the Aryans are the superior race among white races. The field of eugenics grew out of research into genetics and heredity. By the early 1880s, Francis Galton had developed the idea that societies should promote the propagation of certain desirable traits. This could, for example, help eliminate certain diseases. Positive eugenics advocated encouraging procreation between those with desirable traits, while negative eugenics advocated limiting or preventing procreation between people with undesirable traits. University genetics departments were created in Western countries, many of which employed national eugenic policies in the 20th century. The Nazis seized upon these ideas as part of the basis to subjugate, persecute, or even destroy various kinds of people. Could you hold up for a second? You know, I think there was 28 states in the United States of America before the Nazis took over in Germany that had passed eugenicist laws in this country that led to sterilization of people and other kinds of harms to them because they were genetically deficient from the perspective of these intellectual scholars. Please continue. Developments in science and other fields impacted on Europeans' attitudes toward Jews. Jews continued to be generally perceived as strangers in society, bearers of a foreign language, culture, religion, and mores. Modern intellectuals' animus against Jews could no longer be based on religious belief, but rather on science, supposedly. Modern anti-Semitism emerged. Like the new social sciences and political theories, anti-Semitism, too, claimed to be scientific. Anti-Semitism supposedly harked to science as the basis for its antagonism to Jews. Anti-Semitism, a term coined by Wilhelm Marr in 1879, was ideological, racist, political, and organized. The Jews were now viewed as an evil and destructive race, an evil that was immutable, which meant that the Jews' increasing integration into society should be reversed. The Nazi worldview coalesced in an age of ideologies. From the mid-19th century to nearly the mid-20th century, many competing and conflicting ideologies arose, seeking to explain the world and society and claiming to have the formula to make a perfect world. Adolf Hitler and his followers also claimed to explain and fix the world to perfection. They drew upon scientific and other modern developments and merged these ideas with German folkish ideology, a German racial nationalistic ideology that saw all Germans as organically, biologically connected to each other and to the soil of their country. It was in his book Mein Kampf, published in 1925, and in subsequent talks and actions, that Hitler developed this into a worldview that turned society, 
morality, and the world as we know it on its head. Ultimately, the Nazi worldview led to many policies that were based on the 19th and early 20th century scientific and ideological developments, such as Lebensraum. Can you stop it, please? Again, this is a, a scholar who has a particular, uh, well, for lack of a better phrase, he's got an axe to grind on this issue. And what he's saying is the Nazi worldview turned the world on its head. I don't think so. I think the world's been on its head for a very long time. And we're just waking up. We're just getting red-pilled now to the depth of this Nazi ideology. It's a Nazi ideology. It's a eugenicist ideology. It's a survival of the fittest ideology. And it doesn't have to be tied to the Jews. It can be tied to any group, and that's my point. You can take any group that you want to put in that spot and take out the word Jew and put in that group, and you can get the same result. The idea that there is a competition to survive or there's a survival of the fittest, Darwin codified it. It has been banging around in man's minds since the beginning of time. So there's nothing new here. We're just getting things scientized. Can you please continue? Living space, based on the false contention that Germany is the most overcrowded country and Germans have the right to expand eastward in order to gain living space or Operation T4, the so-called euthanasia program, in which some 200,000 German and Austrian mentally handicapped people were murdered, and most pronouncedly, the Nazi campaign against the Jews. Nazi policymaking in 1933 to 1945 was ideologically based on the Nazi worldview. Yet, policies could make tactical compromises on many issues in order to achieve their greater aims. There was only one issue on which there could be no compromise, the Jews. Whatever policy was decided Stop, please. upon... That's not exactly true. Again, he's coming at this from a perspective. The Nazis were very careful about what they did. They took things gradually. Gleichtulschung, for example. There was many people that had Jewish relatives that even served in the German military. The Nazis were careful about this. They were not absolutist. I'm not speaking for the Nazis. I'm just trying to say that when I look at a scholarly work, I want to be honest about my feelings, and I want to critique it from my perspective. Please continue. Would ultimately affect all Jews. The Nazis' innovation was not in their ideas, which, as we have seen, they borrowed from earlier thinking. Their innovation lay in molding these ideas into a comprehensive worldview that was the basis for the policymaking of a modern, scientifically, technologically, and educationally advanced country. And it was from this worldview that the final solution ultimately emerged. Thank you, Tanner. Thank you. So the point here, uh, is not this long piece. I'm just was amazed to find a scholar identifying Darwin and Spencer and Galton as the root causes of this ideology. These were British academic titans that were on the payroll of the crowd, working at the best institutions in England, that would be Oxford, Cambridge, 
spreading an ideology which justified one race is superior and another one's inferior. And if one race is superior and another's inferior, hey, it's good for all of mankind for the strong to rule the weak, for the good of the species. That's why the original uh, survival of the fittest ideology, the people like Teddy Roosevelt that we spoke about last time, tied the ideas of racial superiority to the natural way. What we see in nature where the strongest members of a species reproduce and the weaker members die out. And they were advocating that kind of natural selection in the human sphere, where Christianity actually was kind of a contradiction to that idea or a, a moderating factor to that, to, that, to that naturally observed phenomenon. Well, what's happened over the years is we've become progressively scientized and scientism has taken root throughout the world, it's no longer about the natural way. It's just simply about the enhancement of human ability. And because we become so unbalanced to the scientific and to the intellectual and to the uh, computational, of course, that idea that one race is superior and another is inferior has now become a very technologized kind of concept. Well, let's see what happens when one race is superior and another is inferior. Let's take a look at this piece. It's under number four, the eugenics crusade. The eugenics crusade. Under number four, eugenics. Let's see if we can get this up, get it by the, the thought police. Let's see if they'll let this go up about Nazis. American Nazis. On August 18, 1934, 20-year-old Ann Cooper Hewitt, heiress to one of the largest fortunes in the United States, was admitted to a San Francisco hospital for an emergency appendectomy. She later learned the surgeons not only had removed her appendix, but also a length of her fallopian tubes, rendering her incapable of ever becoming pregnant. The story of the sterilized heiress hit the papers just after the new year in 1936, when Anne filed a half million dollar damage claim against the surgeons and her own mother for sterilizing her without her knowledge or consent. Anne's mother denied any wrongdoing. She'd done what she'd done for society's sake, she insisted, because her daughter was feeble-minded. It was the sort of bizarre high society scandal that would have captured the national imagination under any circumstances. But that one word, feeble-minded, struck a familiar chord for Americans and linked Anne's plight to a decades-old campaign to control human reproduction, known as eugenics. What is the bearing of the laws of heredity upon human affairs? Eugenics provides the answer. Eugenics was proposed as the scientific solution for social problems. It was a combination of hope and aspiration on one side, and on the other side, it was about fear, and in some cases about hate. They are identified early, categorized, feeble-minded, imbecile, 
idiot. It would have been better by far if they had never been born. People tend to think that eugenics was a doctrine that originated with the Nazis, that it was grounded in wild claims that were far outside the scientific mainstream. Both of those impressions are fundamentally not true. It was almost a mania that sort of swept through the country, and there was that kind of naive, optimistic vision of eugenics, like, hey, let's all get together and make better people. The eugenics movement was about having healthy children, about having a stronger society. There's nothing wrong with that. You have to look at the underbelly of what was implemented in the name of eugenics to see what was so problematic about it. Can we stop it just for a second? Uh, we're going to keep going and play the rest of this, but I, I, as we watch this first half, as we go forward, look at how much the medical profession and doctors are at the forefront of the American eugenics movement. Something to think about. The doctors. The doctors we go to for our well-being checkups. The doctors we depend on. The doctors we run to anytime something's wrong with us. Oh, I have to go to the doctor. I have a sniffle. Oh, I have to go to the doctor. I got a pain in my back. Oh, I got to go to the doctor. I don't feel good today. These people who we put so much of our trust in, I'm not going to mention any names, but do you take your daughter to the doctor? Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. I wonder how much the doctors have changed. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not, I'm just a question. I'm not asking for an answer. I mean, we all need to ask ourselves. These people were serving the society at this time. Where are they today? Where's the American Medical Association today? Where were they during the Nazi period? I, I, I'm just asking the question. I'm not giving an answer after all. But I'm asking you to ask yourself the question. Please continue. In the fall of 1902, an American biologist named Charles Benedict Davenport arrived in London on a sort of pilgrimage. He was 36, Harvard-educated, and like many biologists of his generation, absorbed with the study of evolution. He'd been traveling in Europe with his wife, collecting seashells for research on species variation, but this was to be the highlight of the trip a meeting with the world-renowned gentleman scientist, Sir Francis Galton. Oh, there he is again. A pioneering statistician, Galton had lived his 80 Look years his by a single motto. Whenever you can, count. His obsession with measurements and patterns had led him to create the world's first weather maps, establish fingerprinting as a means of identification, and set data-backed parameters for the perfect cup of tea. Charles Davenport had come to discuss another matter, Galton's work on heredity. Francis Galton was a great quantifier. He liked to quantify height, 
hair color? You know, what is the chest size of an average man? What is the uh, thigh length of an average man? Even things like intelligence. Galton had a theory that talent, as he called it, what we would call intelligence, seemed to run in families. And so it quickly occurred to him, if we can get people with high talent to mate with each other, prevent people with low talent from mating with each other, we will, within a few generations, create this race of supermen. Francis Galton was borrowing ideas and kind of riffing off of the work of his half-cousin, Charles Darwin. Darwin believed that evolution was this natural process that was inevitably leading towards what they called the survival of the fittest. Galton really turns that idea on its head and says, you know, natural selection isn't working very well. We need to do a form of selection. We need to intervene. To name the effort, Galton had coined the term eugenics, a hybrid derived from two Greek words, meaning well and born. Charles Davenport believed, as Galton did, that selective breeding could transform the human race. What was needed was a scientific understanding of how heredity actually worked. And over dinner at Galton's home, Davenport declared his intention to get to the bottom of it. Davenport said, I'm gonna create a new kind of institution, a station for experimental evolution. Not Darwinian natural selection that you just go out and observe, but can we figure out how inheritance works? Can we do experiments and find the patterns of heredity? When Davenport sailed for home in December 1902, he carried with him not only a letter of recommendation signed by Galton, but also, he later wrote, a renewed courage for the study of evolution. Davenport and Galton really did imagine that the idea of improving human heredity was of almost religious significance, of profound moral importance. They also believed they were qualified to breed a better race because they believed that they were the best and the brightest. Scarcely more than a year later, with funding from the Carnegie Institution, Davenport opened his research station on the north shore of Long Island at Cold Spring Harbor. Situated on 10 acres along Oyster Bay, the place had been purpose-built for the breeding and analyzing of plants and animals, complete with sprawling garden plots, an aviary, and a half dozen tidy enclosures housing chickens, goats, and sheep. By mating organisms with unusual characteristics, a tailless Manx cat or a rooster with a black comb, and then studying their offspring generation after generation, Davenport hoped to unlock the mystery of evolution. Well, I hope that makes it up. We'll find out. You know, this is uh, America. Eugenics is an American, British, and Anglo-American idea. 
based in scientism, not science, scientism, a set of beliefs, have faith in the science. When you hear that, have faith in the science, hey, we're heading down the scientism pathway. So we can see, and I'm, you know, and I, I'm finding this stuff, I want to share it with you, and I'm just amazed that it's so well documented, yet so little understood. For example, my children love the earth so much, they hate people. They hate people because they love the earth so much. It's kind of the same idea, but a little different. In other words, we have a scientific establishment that is demarcating and delineating what is acceptable and unacceptable. They've taken that over from the previous master of the universe. That would be God. Excuse me, let me say it again. We have a new group of technocratic scientific masters who are delineating what good and bad is for the people, and they have supplanted the previous forever, the one true living God that told us those things. They have a higher understanding of it. They must think that the people that believe in God are an inferior stock because they have that lingering, oh, how shall we say, illusion, as Sigmund Freud said, the future of an illusion. Well, an illusion doesn't have much of a future, right? So they're going to give us scientific evidence as to why their idea about what right and wrong is, is the true and correct idea. Have faith in the science, after all. Trust the science. Believe in the science. That's what they're promoting. And science is an inquiry based on doubt. So let us keep in mind all the time the benefits of science, the advance of science, but that men and women practice science with different degrees of integrity, of sacred honor. And when you start to believe your own bull****, thank you, Tanner, when you start to believe your own bleep, you can go right off the rails and start clipping people out wholesale is what's happened since this ideology took hold in the United States and in England in the 1800s. Well, how do things work? They work very gradually. Gradually. So let's just talk about gradually, and we'll have a few more clips. It's an easy day for me because I'm sharing things through my phone. You know, it is supporting everything I've shared with you, uh, and I didn't know it was out there. And I wasn't really looking to, you know, validate my theory. But here it is. It's everywhere. But why doesn't everyone know this? Why doesn't everybody know about Darwin and Spencer and Galton and Malthus and view them as racists and eugenicists? You know, hey, hey, why doesn't everybody get this? Well, that's what we're working on. Please spread out the information. People need to know that when I send my children to seventh grade biology class, the theory they're being taught as truth is the root cause of Nazism. Nazism. Let's look at how these things work gradually. Hit this clip gradually for me, please, Tanner. It was a gradual process. First, there were some kids who didn't greet you anymore. But it was so gradual that you accepted, or not accepted, but tried to ignore these early 
manifestations of a change of ideology into evil. Could you hold it up there? You know, there are people in our society today that have made personal choices which has led to them being othered by the mainstream. Their choices, their autonomy has led them to be treated in a way where they are no longer okay. People don't want to hang around with them because they've made choices that make them unclean, unsafe. You know, this is very much like what happened here gradually. Let's just listen to this a little bit more. Everything was fine until, I don't know, I was maybe three or four. One of the kids that I played with called me a dirty Jew and beat me up. So after that, I stopped going to play in the court. Stop. Now, for those of you who think we're talking about Jews, I want to go back. You can go back and look at episode 50 and 51. We're going to a different level of discourse. I want you to put into that word, Jew, take it out. Put another word in there, a word that you know that maybe identifies you. You're not Jewish, but you're identified some other way. And if they can do it to the Jews, could they do it to you? That's the question we're asking each other here. Please continue. Saul Messenger's parents, like thousands of other Polish Jews, had emigrated to Germany, hoping to escape poverty and anti-Semitism. They settled in Berlin, which had been one of the most tolerant cities in Europe. Stop, please. Like the United States of America, we're very tolerant here. We're very tolerant, right? Whatever floats your boat. You've heard that before, right? Whatever floats your boat. But actually, I want to say this again. I'm not here to fence the Jews as some beat-on group of people that we have to understand. That's got nothing to do with this. I'm a Jew talking about Nazis. This is an underground transmission. Substitute your status in the word Jew as we go through the rest of this. Across the street from us, on the ground floor, there were many shops. About half of them were Jewish-owned. And I remember one day, I saw crowds of people forming, and eventually somebody threw a rock through the window, broke the windows, and the people went into the stores and simply took the merchandise. Oh, stop. The people went into the stores and simply took the merchandise. Where have we seen that happening? Have we seen that recently, Tanner? Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Very interesting. Very interesting. You know, it's like this stuff is new. It's not new. It's not new at all. It's not new. It's old. We just haven't lived long enough to remember it. That's why I'm sharing it with you. They went into the stores and took all the merchandise. Please continue. He's been standing there, and they did absolutely nothing. They just allowed it to happen. Susan and Joseph Hilsenroth lived with their parents and little brother in Western Germany. I was born in a small town in Germany, in Bad Kreuznach. Our life was pretty good. My father had a linen store, and we, he was doing really well and taking good care of his family. We were very happy living in our house until Hitler came into power. They boycotted my father's store. He was Can you stop able it, please? Make, 
Hitler did not come into power. He was elected, and the Nazis were elected by the German people, by we the people, we the German people. We're going to elect him. Please continue. Living for us anymore. With the rise of the Nazis, of course, he had to close his business. And uh, he peddled fruits and vegetables as to uh, just to make a living. And but he managed somehow. I'm flabbergasted when I think about it. We moved to an apartment, and then another apartment. So it was each step was a down step, and it was always because we were Jewish. We had to move. My parents did want us to have a normal childhood in an impossible situation. I mean, we couldn't help but see. I mean, we were intelligent children, but we didn't understand really that it was going to get any worse. And I guess maybe Stop, a lot please. of Jews... They could not understand it was going to get worse. You know, how bad can it really get? Well, let me tell you how bad it got. These people survived. Everybody else they knew died. Why? Because they did not conform to, they were not part of the prevailing ideology, in this case, the genetics. But, you know, that blood thing, that's a scam. It's what is in between people's ears that matters. And they just weren't participating. So somebody made the decision. Why mess with them? Let's kill them. Let's continue. I were living in Germany at the time. Didn't know that it was going to get worse, but it did. On the evening of May 10th, 1933, students in Berlin and some 30 other university towns raided their campus libraries, carried out armloads of books by Jewish authors and by those Gentile writers deemed by the Nazis to embody an un-German spirit and flung them into bonfires. Stop, please. What kind of other spirit might be un-whatever? What books are getting banned? Everybody's banning books. It's not just, I mean, books are getting banned wholesale. Let's have, They did it here. Wait, the Nazis were banning books. The Nazis were banning books. Let's continue. Writings by Sigmund Freud and Albert Einstein, Thomas Mann and Ernest Hemingway and Rosa Luxemburg and scores of others all went up in flames. The book burning marked the end of a month during which the Reich had promulgated its first openly anti-Jewish laws. With certain exceptions, men and women of so-called non-Aryan ancestry were ordered to leave government service. Jewish doctors and dentists were barred from treating patients enrolled in the government health system. Jews were no longer permitted to Stop, enter the please. legal profession. I think that in the government health service, if you don't follow certain rules, you lose your job. Nazism. It's Nazism. There it is. If you don't follow the prescribed rules, you lose your job. Let's continue. Isn't that interesting? I don't like this. Jewish editors and journalists, artists and musicians lost their livelihoods. Joseph Goebbels, Hitler's Minister of Public Enlightenment and Propaganda, 
presided over the book burning in Berlin. He exulted that it marked the end of Jewish intellectualism. It's step by step. Stop. Almost like the end of racism. The end of Jewish intellectualism. Racism. They ended it. They burned the books. They othered the people. And then they killed them. That's how you end intellectualism. Intellectualism. There it is. You're watching it. Please continue. Jews are fired. Jewish lawyers who work in the courts are fired. Jewish teachers are fired. The Nazis were very attuned to what the public reaction would be. It was drip, drip, drip. They're judging. They're very careful of what the German people will accept. Hitler eliminated opposition parties, crushed the labor unions, and would eventually order the murder of potential rivals. The goal of the Nazi government, Goebbels said, was that there should be only one opinion, one party, and one faith in Germany. There are to be no minorities of opinion in the new Germany and no division of loyalties. Most men will wear uniforms, the badge of their membership in that secret mystic community of blood brothers, the German state. Women will, by preference, wear kitchen aprons and will stay home and take care of the children, which they will gladly bear in large numbers for Germany. They will not hold political opinions, but then neither will anyone else. Dorothy Thompson, Saturday Evening Post. <clears throat> well, you know, it's easy for my listeners and viewers to think I'm off on some kind of rant about the Nazis and the Jews. Actually, I'm just on a rant about the Nazis, about eugenics, about the theory that holds one race superior and another inferior that is now morphed into a new and higher level of discernment for those people. Because they've discerned that if you have money and you are a materialist and you're in power, hey, everybody else, not so much. Isn't that fun? We're living in a kind of a... These poor people were living in a catastrophically genocidal regime where people were deplatformed, where attorneys lost their licenses just for being who they were, for what they believed, where churches and synagogues were closed. They were closed, closed down. People couldn't pray. When they reopened, hey, had to be under certain special circumstances. And it went drip and drip and drip and drip. Let's just play two minutes on the Nuremberg Laws, then just how this thing eventually got entrenched. The National Archives has literally hundreds of millions of pages related to the Third Reich. We have literally uh, thousands of uh, original documents, but probably none more significant than the one that we've just received, the three Nuremberg Laws. There were three laws uh, adopted at the Nuremberg rally on September 15, 1935. They were, they were typewritten and signed uh, basically all three by Hitler as the leader of the party and the leader of the government. General Van Fleet gave Patton the, uh, the Nuremberg laws and translations of them. And a week and a half later, uh, Patton visited the Huntington 
library and basically deposited with them uh, the laws. Patton said that um, the document came into his possession because his 90th Infantry Division, the boys really loved him and he loved them back as a way of, um, of showing their love and affection for him. They gave this, uh, the Nuremberg Laws to him as a gift. He states in the document and therefore it's mine. Uh, which if he'd gone back and looked at the instructions he received, not to seize, uh, not to take uh, captured records uh, with him, he had known that it's not his. Uh, the Huntington believed that these documents were basically alienated, seized records and that they should have come to the National Archives and they did come to us this year. One of the American psychiatrists at the Nuremberg trials was trying to figure out how a very civilized people like the Germans could allow something like this to happen. And part of it, he determined after talking to the defendants, was that the process, step-by-step -step process of marginalizing the, the Jews, with the uh, Nuremberg Laws being the first law that addressed a whole group of people, that this was the first law that sort of made them less than human. And after that, it was, then it was a step-by-step -step process of segregating them and then exterminating them. Thank you, Tanner. That's great. The step-by-step -step process. Gleichtulschung. Bringing everything into a harmony. Step-by-step. -step. So let's talk about Minnesota politics. Let's talk about Minnesota politics, and let's make sure we've got a a clip here that can go out because let's talk about what we're doing. What are our, what's our next steps? Well, here we are on the uh, eve of the uh, holiday. It's the end of August. We're going to get uh, a few days off here. And when the holiday is over, guess what? The election season is going to start to come into focus. We're heading towards the endorsing conventions in Minnesota and throughout the country. And when I talk about Minnesota, I know many of you are from other states. Each state has its own unique set of rules and laws, but they're all the same. They're just a little different. In every state, we got a group in power. In every state, that group doesn't want anybody to come in. They want to have a one-party rule, a unity, the continuous pleas for unity in every state. We hear it everywhere, unity. We hear it all the time here in Minnesota. We want unity. Just like the Nazis were demanding unity, everyone was going to think and feel and act the same because it was good for the people, because they knew what was right. And anyone that did not agree, which in that, you know, in the Nazis' case was the Jews, but anyone that didn't agree, trade unionists, Catholics, anyone that was not complying with the ideology, the Nazi ideology, which held one race, one race superior and another inferior. Anyone that didn't apply, with, uh, you know, comply with that English idea that had spread to America that the Germans picked up. They didn't make it up. They picked it up. And in fact, there was a lot of financing that came from the Anglo-American banking combines. They actually financed the Nazis into power and financed the growth of their military. Oh, I wouldn't be bringing up BlackRock for any reason like this. I mean, but 
you know, there was investment firms at that time. I mean, BlackRock didn't exist then, but there was uh, some other investment firms that were doing it at the time. So these things are not new. They've been done before. American and English money financed the Nazis as they rose to power and developed their military. So what's happening in Minnesota? What are we doing? Why are we doing this? Well, well, I like to imagine it as if I was in Nazi Germany in 1932. I mean, this is what motivates me. And I have to be very careful about what I say, so I'm going to say it exactly the way I think about it. I think of myself in a cafe in 1932 when there was still a multi-party system that was under deep stress. It was very obvious to me at that time that the Nazis, number one, were going to kill me, and number two, were seeking autocratic and complete control to implement their Nazi ideology. They had a Nazi ideology about how the human race should be. They had a, a forum to get that idea out. That was radio. That was propaganda. That was theater and art. All of the uh, social media ways of communicating with the German people were controlled progressively, step by step, by the Nazis. And the German people actually elected elected the Nazis into power. Now, there was another election in 1936 where the German people again elected Adolf Hitler as the supreme Fuhrer of the German people, the leader. But guess what? He was the only politician on the ballot. He ran unopposed. Yet they had an election, and they reelected him the Fuhrer. He was elected two times. He was a two-time award winner. Isn't that cool? So when we have these elections, sometimes if you have an imperious leader, he will be elected, and it has nothing to do with an election. It's kind of a show-and-tell story. So when I was sitting in that cafe in 1932 with my friends, like Scott and Rob, we were sitting around drinking coffee, and of course in those days we smoked cigarettes. It was very uh, macho like Humphrey Bogart. And I was smoking my unfiltered cigarette, and I said, you know, Rob and Scott, this is looking terrible. We got to do something. We got to pull our money out of our pockets and get organized here, or they're going to kill us. They will kill me. And, of course, you know, people were at different points of understanding what was going on. Maybe one guy said, ah, oh, come on, you're losing it now. They're not going to kill us. They're just saying these things for politics. It's not going to get that bad. And I said, no, I don't think so. I think these people are serious. Did you see the way those Nazi stormtroopers broke into Nordstrom's and stole everything? Oh, it wasn't Nordstrom's. It was some other, I don't know what they called their department stores in 1932. I don't know. But it was just like Antifa or a flash mob going into a store and cleaning the place out, and the police didn't even watch. They didn't, I mean, they watched. They didn't even do anything. I mean, people were doing really illegal things, and they weren't even being prosecuted. And I was saying, hey, Rob, Scott, what the hell are we doing here? We got to get organized. Well, you know what? This time we are organized. This time we're organized. We are a movement. We are a political movement. I know what the next step is. 
The next step is to find charismatic candidates that believe in the country called the United States of America. Not some world governance that's necessary for reasons that are seemingly quite rational, but basically establish a supergroup of technocrats who hold one race superior and another inferior. Now, I'm not calling them Nazis. I'm just saying they're supremely educated and they have an ideology and they think somebody like me is kind of a, you know, a mongrel, a mongrel to be clipped out. In fact, they had a word for me or for my children, I should say, because my children are not fully Jewish. There was a word for it. Let me see if I can find it. A Mischling, a Mischling, a Mischling was a pseudoscientific racial division or a pseudoscientific division, pseudoscience, like scientism. Not really science, just sounded scientific. That according to these Nuremberg laws we were just talking about, it was the basis for the policies of Nazi Germany. Only people with four German grandparents were considered to be Germans of full blood. Their blood was good. Their blood was good. They had good blood. Can you believe they had good? It was about their blood. It was what was in their veins. Isn't that interesting? They, they identified German people by their blood. By their blood. Like you had to take a blood test. Like you went for a blood draw. And somebody said, hey, guess what? I got bad news for you. Only full-blooded or German grandparents could you be considered actually a German. German nationals with three or four ancestors that were Jewish were considered Jews. Jews. They were unclean, unholy. Their blood was no good. Their blood was not right. They had the blood draw. For some reason, they weren't Germans. And guess what happened to them? The sons of bitches were killed. Now, you can leave that one in. Yes, because they were sons of bitches, because they weren't Germans. They were not fully German people. Their parents were not human beings. They were less than humans. And they threatened the survival of all the German people. You know, it wasn't just because they were different. They threat their choices culturally threatened the survival. What they believed, you know, the blood thing is kind of a metaphor, right? What they believed was a threat to the future of the Volk, to the people, like the Volkswagen. Have you heard of the Volkswagen, Carl? You know, that was from Hitler, the Volkswagen, right? They were a threat to the Volk, to the people. And when something threatens the people, when something threatens their health, when we have groups of people that do not comply with procedures or they don't have the right blood and they threaten the health of the people, well, it's very obvious what we have to do, right? We have to protect the people. We need to get organized right now. And here's the next step. We're talking about Minnesota politics. We're talking about national politics. We are going to provide each one of you with the opportunity to take one-minute and five-minute clips from Free People Radio and push this out to your social media networks, kind of like the French underground. <laughs> 
right? It's a transmission. We have one goal in doing this, to drive people. And I mean drive them. Because, of course, if we didn't have to drive them, they'd been doing it by themselves for decades. But the fact is most people don't. It is our civic obligation to participate in the politics of our neighborhood. Something is coming up on February 27th. It's called the Minnesota State Caucuses. At a high school or community center near you, your neighborhood will gather. And in a classroom, you will elect delegates who will be able to champion at the Senate District Convention that's going to be held two months later, the candidate of your choice. Who will you choose to be a candidate? Who are the candidates that believe in the health and well-being of the American people, who believe in the health and well-being of America, who believe in borders, who believe in a national economy, who believe in sacred honor, who believe in telling the truth, who believe that we have to rebalance our culture away from unbridled materialism to a greater balance of spiritual and material well-being. Who are those candidates? Well, you get to pick them, and you get to go to your caucus, and you get to ask your neighbors to elect you, and then you will be a delegate from your neighborhood, from your precinct. Then you will go to your Senate District Convention two months later. There, you'll be able to vote for your Senate District delegates. Maybe you'll be one of them. And those Senate district delegates will go to the state conventions and nominate and endorse the party politicians that will represent the ideology of the United States of America. And what is that ideology? Freedom and well-being. Freedom, the freedoms granted to us by a creator, those being life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Those freedoms granted to us by a creator, not by a group of technocrats that are sitting there with scientism telling me how to live my life. No, those of us that want to maintain faith in a creator must become motivated now. We must think of ourselves, well, I'm just going to tell you, I think of myself in a cafe in 1932, talking to my friends Rob and Scott and begging them to join me in this effort lest they and their children be killed. Just that simple. You either believe I'm crazy. Hey, maybe I'll go on Royce White's Please Call Me Crazy. Maybe I'm just crazy. Maybe I'm just crazy. It could be. And I hope that's true. And I'll tell you how that's going to work out. If we get really good at this and build this underground of connectivity of people working with people, to get involved in the political. I'm not asking people to be like Professor Penn and be on this 24-7. Just become a delegate and show up and vote. It's going to take two days out of your life. you got 365 in a year. It's actually one night and an afternoon. We're talking about six hours of your life. Six hours to save the lives of children. That's where we're at in my mind. I'm thinking 1932. I'm in Germany. Had we only had those precinct caucuses, had the German people only recognized the danger that the Nazis posed to their health and well-being, to their freedom, to the future lives of their children and their grandchildren, maybe had they gone to their churches and their synagogues and their mosques and organized and been involved in the political process, 
maybe the Nazis wouldn't have gained power. How nice that would have been historically. So on that note, I want to thank you for joining me. I want to wish you a great holiday weekend. I want you to recharge, be well, get outside, take a walk, eat good food. And I look forward to seeing you after the holiday. Thank you very much for joining.